Welcome to the Heartbreak to Happiness Show with Sara Davison. If you're struggling with a breakup and you feel shocked, angry, betrayed, devastated, or sad and alone, then this podcast is for you. Best-selling author and award-winning host, Sara Davison, shares how you too can get on with your life to heal, grow, and move from heartbreak to happiness. Here's your host, Sara Davison. Welcome back to the show. And today, my guest is Dr. Mariam Mahmood. Mariam is a pracademic, a practical academic. She's an expert on women in leadership and spiritual abuse in faith-based spaces, following her own experience of surviving and striving through spiritual abuse in 2019, Mariam made it her life's mission to support the empowerment of victims, especially women and marginalized people. So I am super excited to welcome Mariam to the show. Welcome, Mariam. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's so wonderful to be here. I'm really delighted that you agreed to join me. This is a topic that I have never covered specifically on Heartbreak Happiness. So thank you so much for joining us. First of all, maybe put us in the picture a little bit about your own story. Great. Thank you so much for spotlighting the issue um, of spiritual abuse, which we'll come to talk about. I myself, I wear several different hats. I am primarily a pracademic, so a practitioner academic. I work within communities and essentially my mission is to enhance public literacy around issues that affect gender, religion and race simultaneously. And my background or my story and what's the link with spiritual abuse, I myself am a survivor of spiritual abuse. I come from a Muslim background. I'm a practicing Muslim woman um, of South Asian heritage. And I am also Irish, but, but British as well. So, you know, I'm, I'm a complete, I guess, cosmopolitan individual. I come from, you know, as I've said, I have a doctorate in war studies. Uh, so again, I come from a certain level of educational privilege as well, which I am very uh, open about. And as a result, what I, you know, the, what's, what's really important to mention is um, if somebody, a woman like myself, who is as privileged, as educated, as outspoken and fierce as myself, can be a victim, can be a survivor, then I have an obligation to help other women, especially those women of faith, to overcome the challenges posed to them in the guise of religious abuse. So tell us a little bit, what is religious or spiritual abuse? Tell us what that means. Sure. So in a nutshell, spiritual abuse is the weaponization of religion or religious practices, precepts or edicts by those in positions of relative authority or power in order to coerce, control or manipulate vulnerable people, usually women and children, into behaving or acting in ways that are harmful to them. So essentially, say if you are a person who's part of a faith community or is a spiritual or religious individual, what can happen is people can use that against you. They know it's something dear to you. So what they might do is, for instance, tell you that you can't be a feminist because your religion supposedly says you can't. 
that's not true, but they can make you, manipulate you to believe that it is. So these are the sort of things that happen. And many, the overwhelming majority of cases that I, in my capacity as the founding director of an organization that helps survivors, uh, my organization is called The Shift, um, in that capacity, the cases that I have come across over the last three years have been mainly from women, women who have been in um, sort of, so it's gendered spiritual abuse, it's targeting women, and especially those in the context of their homes. So much like any other form of abuse, those who are closest to you are more likely to abuse or abet the abuser. So with that in mind, the context is similar in cases of spiritual abuse. So this is really interesting. I think it's something that, that that's not really spoken about, is it? I mean, we talk a lot about emotional abuse, uh, physical abuse, financial abuse, sexual abuse. I guess this comes under the emotional abuse category in a way, does it? Well, that, that's a really interesting point. So I myself, as a researcher as well, so I said pracademic because I help people, but at the same time, I write articles or, you know, research this. And to be honest, spiritual abuse can actually be an amalgamation of different forms of abuse. And primarily, yes, it is an emotional abuse. But those who are spiritually abusive, for instance, in the context of a marriage, in, in, in patriarchal or traditional orthodox communities, what tends to happen is they have a male figurehead and he kind of, you know, wields control. And as such, he'll most likely be in charge of the finances. So he might, you know, in the context of a relationship, the woman in question might be suppressed or subjugated and she might be threatened in certain ways, uh, finances cut off, her children might be removed from her or things like that. So in, in a sense, um, spiritual abuse kind of sits on a tier that is distinct at the same time, can incorporate different forms of abuse. To be honest, you know, there's rarely, well, physical abuse doesn't exist without emotional abuse because it is emotional abuse too, right? So there's, you know, quite often it, there's a lot of overlap, a lot of crossover there. So I guess what the most important thing is for people listening is, you know, how do we spot the signs of this? And if you're thinking, gosh, is this what I'm going through? What are some of the signs that people can look out for? Well, specifically in the case of relationships, you know, if you are in or potentially in a spiritually abusive relationship uh, with a significant other, um, what, you know, the, the signs aren't easy to spot. You're absolutely correct. With any form of abuse, it's very difficult to ascertain sometimes uh, that you are a target. But some signs might be, for instance, um, you know, as a woman, you might be quite independent or you might might want them to uh, go out or you might want to see friends and your significant other might not want you to do that. They might control the way you dress, the way you present yourself when you leave the house, what you choose to do, whether you're working or not. A lot of women who I have helped through these challenges, they've been told that, well, you know, uh, I've been barred from seeing friends, I'm not allowed to have male friends or female friends, um, and I am told that the reason, so it's not like other forms of abuse, there might be different reasoning that your abuser gives, equally bad, but in this case, they're so tactful and manipulative, the abusers, that what they do is they, they 
tell the survivor, the victim, that, uh, well, you can't do this because religion says so. And that is deeply problematic because obviously oftentimes the victim is a practicing person, a person who follows a particular faith. And for them to suddenly be told, well, you know, if you don't do this, um, the repercussions and ramifications could be in some faiths, hellfire or you know when you die your soul will not be forgiven or it will be tainted or something of that nature so of course it poses this existential crisis within the individual and as such you know these signs might be very difficult or very deeply veiled in many ways and then the the abuser might even say well you know I'm doing this for your own good I'm doing this to protect you and our family. And then what also happens is in, you know, such as the nature of patriarchal societies or uh, the, what happens is family, extended family are often involved in heightening the abuse, in, in, in um, empowering and in, uh, this, the abuser and um, standing with them, abetting the abuse. Yeah, I've seen this before and it, and it is quite quite scary how other people will reinforce that message and sometimes not even really knowingly I think some people get sort of get sucked into this don't they and they're they're a party to it because they're living in fear as well and if someone's abusing one person usually they have an influence over over more so okay so if people are listening to this and thinking that that does sound like me what can they do do you think people actually recognize it first of all because I think if you're being told that it's against your religion then then obviously maybe you don't question it and you do you do go and just blindly follow what they're saying. Absolutely. So, so many people, survivors who are living in silence, you know, as a result of this, you're very right, it is difficult to acknowledge, to accept. So as a result, many people, researchers and practitioners such as myself, have been raising the alarm within interfaith communities and faith communities. I ran a, um, a year-long campaign to spotlight spiritual abuse specifically in faith-based communities with regards to Muslim communities in particular. And I was fortunate enough to have a grant provided by the United Nations who, who supported many of us um, in, in, this, in these endeavors that we had. And I was very, very grateful for that. But as a result of that, um, you know, I've been, my, my, my um, work has been pedestaled in, in many ways. But um, I think what has happened in that year, I've noticed other people are also speaking out in Orthodox Jewish communities and Christian communities, in Hindu and Sikh communities, et cetera, across the world. So there are, there's a lot of traction. There are movements that are building. It is a slow process, but what we're, what, you know, for instance, if, if there are people listening who might find, you know, some solace in what I'm saying or something resonates with them, um, you know, my own organization, you're more than welcome to check out my um, infographics, but also resources that I have uh, uh, listed in my various social media. So Twitter, Facebook and Instagram of The Shift, The Shift with Mariam in many places, um, which I'm sure you can you can refer to later. But essentially um, what that is, is a, a list of resources as well and um it also depends on your context so of course as you know the nature of our conversations are is about spiritual abuse in relationship settings i also want to make clear that spiritual abuse doesn't just happen to women in marriages or uh, you know romantic relationships but also in familial settings you know your own 
parents, family, extended family could be perpetrating this form of violence against you. So just bearing that in mind. So you're more than welcome to check out the resources, but also, um, you know, you're more than welcome to email me or my contemporaries. You know, if I can't help you directly, I'm more than happy to put you in touch with other colleagues who might be more specific to your faith or your faith background. So a lot of help is out there. And, um, you know, it's at this moment in time, it's about raising awareness, about getting people and communities to realise the dangers of this form of abuse. Widespread, then, is what you're saying. So it's all religions. It's not just, you know, a few. It's, it's every religion. Absolutely. Basically, the fundamental point here is coercion and control. People in positions of power across the board, it's basic psychology, they want to retain their hold on power. They want to control people. And of course, any ideology will suffice, right? But religion, especially more so because people believe it. It is at the core of their being. I myself, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I may not look like a stereotypical Muslim woman, but I am spiritual. I do believe in God. And I'm not afraid of saying that. But I believe in justness. And I believe that my understanding of what God is, God is beauty. God is all around us, right? And for those people who are abusing, it's not. And they want to, they want to completely obliterate any beauty because it gets in the way of them taking control. I find this fascinating because, you know, with all abuse, quite often victims don't know that it's happening to them because they're minimalizing it or they're normalizing it or they just trust in this person because, you know, if they're you know, in a family setting with them or married to them, you know, maybe that's just how they see this is how it's always been. So mm -hmm. if people are starting to think, yeah, you know what, this maybe this isn't quite right. You know, obviously they can go and check out your resources and I'll definitely mention those at, at the end, but where the people can specifically find them. But, you know, how is how are they to manage these emo these emotions that are going to come up and and is it safe to say and confront this with the abuser what what's your recommendation around that this is a really really important question sarah um you know so as you rightly said it's it's difficult it is challenging and oftentimes there is more at stake than just your own you know your own being children might be involved your you know your livelihood might be at stake and as such it is difficult to reach out for help and to you know to to speak with the abuser regarding this because you know obviously it's it's kind of like a catch 22 you're being told that you can't do this and you'll be stifled and then if you if you react by saying actually this isn't okay you'll be told well why are you speaking back at me you know that's not allowed too so it's it's you you find yourself caught in a rut as a survivor however there are, um, uh, you know, various different organisations um, within local communities, local councils, um, as well as um, women's aid and other, you know, Muslim women's aid, Christian, there's Jewish women's aid. And there's there's lots of uh, organisations of this kind that you can reach out to. Um, and what they will do is give you proper guidance in accordance with your uh, with your context. I will also add that alongside maybe, you know, speaking out and reaching out 
for help, um, please also try and seek some form of potential uh, mental and well-being health services as well. So the NHS has those available in local contexts. So, you know, it's important to safeguard yourself as an individual as best you can. This might be a slow process, but ensuring your mental well-being is safeguarded as well as, you know, your um, your your physical well-being. But then after that, if you find yourself, you know, being physically assaulted or, you know, things are just moving, they're escalating, um, reach out to the authorities in your local area as well as potentially seeking legal counsel so these are the, the steps that I run with if somebody were to approach me I would talk to them specifically about their case and um, we would go through the potential options and the plan uh the strategy rather on how we can mitigate the abuse safeguard the individual and potentially the children uh, involved and where we go further because not everyone you know, is willing as, as a survivor and they shouldn't be forced into taking steps that they don't feel comfortable with. But at the same time, we need to protect them. We need to help them and facilitate their empowerment. So it is quite a tedious task. Yeah, and I, I hear that. And I, you know, I get, I'm just thinking it's so important that you're safe before you're know, putting the safeguarding first and making sure that if you are going to confront anyone that you make sure that it's safe to do so. And if you don't think it is, then, you know, as you say, reach out. And, and it's great. In the UK, we have a lot of domestic abuse services that support um, people. And we have those kind of backup teams Yeah, around the world. Do you know, is this something that you, know, you were talking about United Nations before? Is there support around the world for these things? Because obviously, you know, this is something that's a worldwide challenge. It really is a, a huge challenge. And I think um, progress is being made. Uh, globally. Um, you know, when I started my campaign, translating the word or the term spiritual abuse into different languages was, you know, we were met with awful lot of roadblocks. How do we actually translate something so that it fits a certain context, not just religiously, but culturally? Because, you know, religion is, you know, a set of practices, but how they manifest or how they're actually lived really depends on where you are in the world. So, um, you know, I've been fortunate enough to speak with various different heads of state, um, various different envoys to the UN or those who are in the corridors of power to um, really get them to understand this problem and to, uh, to really confront it as well. Because, you know, they sit in a difficult position as well. You know, religion is a definite hot topic, but also something that could be controversial. So I guess um, traction is being made, but um, it's slow and it's steady. And I think, you know, through the through the remit of, of your, uh, your uh, platform, I think also one other thing besides just survivors, I think if there are other people who are working in this area, who are working to eradicate the harms of spiritual abuse, I would love to um, speak with them as well so that, you know, the more people who are working on this, uh, you know, to, to, to confront this challenge in their own remit, the better. And if we are in unison, it's more difficult for abusers and for those who are on the other side to knock us down. And I guess this isn't just a, a, a women-based abuse, because it must affect children as well, right? Because if they're living in the household with somebody that's saying things are a certain way and that if they do that or they don't do that, there's going to be serious punishment or re repercussions. How does this impact children within those family environments? 
Are you struggling to cope with your breakup or divorce? Are you feeling devastated, heartbroken, sad and anxious? If so, please know that you are not alone and there is help available. Sarah Davison, best known as the Divorce Coach, and her team of accredited coaches are here to offer you the support and guidance you need to navigate all areas of your breakup, take back your control, and start feeling happy again. Sarah will show you how to dial down those controlling negative emotions, unhook from your ex, get back in the driving seat of your life and design a future you are excited to live. Sarah has a range of solutions to support any breakup, including free guides, one-to-one coaching, her Heartbreak to Happiness virtual retreats, live retreats, and you can even train to be a breakup and divorce coach with Sarah too. Visit www.saradavison.com today and start to feel happy again. How does this impact children within those family environments? This is unfortunately such a pressing point because oftentimes there are children involved and yes, you know, the, the mental and psychological harms that this poses to those children their lifelong, the damage that it does to them. You know, some of them might actually develop a form of Stockholm syndrome where they think actually what this individual is saying, you know, I'll I'll toe this line and actually they know what's best for me. So I must adhere to what they're saying. Others, unfortunately, it might result in them retaliating and saying, you know what, I don't want to have anything to do with this individual or anything that they stand for, even though, the child might actually be, you know, spiritual. And, you know, so not only have they physically, emotionally harmed them, they've also taken away something from them that, you know, was dear to them at some point, or maybe some some affinity could be found through it. And, and it's just so toxic, the environment for children. And, and I think what's also worth mentioning is that what that child faces in their home setting in the form of you know seeing the spiritual abuse and, and facing the abuse itself is replicated then in their wider community oftentimes because you know it, it takes a whole village then you know not just to save people but also um for the abuse to continue and perpetuate to be you know not only to embolden and abet the, the abusers in question but also to create an environment in which All of this is so normalized. So what they're facing at home isn't just a one-off. It's actually something that their friends might be facing too. It might just be common practice. And that's where we need to intervene. You know, intervention is absolutely key by education. But I guess living in fear is Mm. something that that is, you know, I mean, with all abusers, you live in a state of fear. You don't know what's coming next. You don't know, you know, you're walking on eggshells. Everything you do, you're thinking through. You you can't sort of react or say how you truly feel because you've got to monitor that. And as you say, that does have long lasting repercussions. And and obviously, you know, as, as children grow, they can rebel against those things. They can stand up for things or they become like the abuser and perpetuate it. Is this the sort of thing that you're seeing then in the communities you're working with? Sadly, yes, that, that's, that's it. You know, it can, it can create this divide entirely. So some people, you know, each of us copes in a different way. So similarly, children, they cope in their own ways. Um, some of it might be down to nurture, some of it 
might be down to what their nature is like. And, um, you know, as time goes by, we see that, you know, children who are exposed to this form of violence, as you rightly said, either they can go on to replicate it and the, the cycle continues, or if they choose to break away from that cycle, are they doing so in a healthy manner? in a way that is, um, you know, not violating themselves continuously or violating others. So I think that's also very, very important. So again, you know, I'm working with other researchers and practitioners within the Christian communities and Jewish communities specifically to see, um, you know, what we can learn from one another. Because I think what's really important, as I said earlier, and I, and I think it bears repeating, is that when we confront challenges of this kind, you know, looking, because it's such a, as you said, widespread, ubiquitous problem, if we have the tools and techniques and training across the board, and we are learning from one another's experience and peer-to-peer -peer capacity building in that sense, that is so vital and enriching because it really helps us ascertain sort of the key commonalities and see the patterns that these abusers are using. And, and also it, it's, it prevents us from stigmatizing certain communities as well, because that's also a fear then, you know, because we have to remember that the victims and survivors that we are trying to help actually belong to these communities too. So simply saying something like, well, actually extremism is a problem. Religion and extremists in religious communities are the problem. So we need to make sure that people are, um, we suppress their level of practicing, whatever. And I kind of think, well, actually, as somebody who's worked within this wider remit, you know, and has understood and studied counter extremism, I don't think this is the appropriate way to go because it sidelines and it's, it suppresses those victims even further because, you know, not only, not, so basically, we're echoing we're echoing what the abuser is saying. We're really feeding into their hands by saying, actually, yeah, religion is a problem. So, you know, these people are the representatives of that religion, the abusers are, and these victims need to do something about it. What they need to do is get rid of their religion and become secular. And that's really, it's not worked. That has not been a, a, a positive course of action. I mean, it's it's very difficult with all forms of abuse. And I think it's really interesting what you're saying, because it is a community thing. So, you know, with spiritual, it's a community. So you're asking somebody to to make a change or they're wanting to, to get out of that, but that probably will mean losing a lot of their friends, family, support network, their entire community in some cases. As you said, it takes a village to perpetuate that abuse. So, you know, that can be a, a real challenge to, you know, an obstacle to getting out, I guess, for a lot of people, because leaving that entire safety net support net mechanism that you've had for such a long time and all maybe that you know could be just too daunting for many people absolutely you know the risks are many fold you are not only risking as you said the relations uh the networks of support that you've received in other capacities but also this fear of ostracization of the stigma that you will face for being a potential whistleblower or a, somebody who is who is leaving behind the abuse, you are putting yourself in the firing range pretty much in many ways. And as such, what's important is, as we said earlier, is to ensure that you are safe in many ways, emotionally and physically, before you raise any alarms or, or reach out. Uh, but also, I think this is where um, campaigners, it's a duty of campaigners and those who work 
within um, domestic abuse prevention settings to really raise awareness within community settings um, in a way that is um, accessible to those communities. You know, oftentimes um, abuse can happen in uh, faith-based communities that might be quite insular in that regard it's important for local community authorities local agencies and also um you know in some cases you know I've, I've worked with the west midlands police regarding fgm similarly i think it's also important for us to work on mitigating the harms and dangers of spiritual abuse with these organizations together so that we can educate those uh sources and those um those uh associations but also the community at large so that if somebody does speak up those within the community can actually hold space for them affirm and validate their feelings and their emotions and also their, ensure their well-being you know and I think that's what we're working towards right now. I, I think that's so vital and yet the incentives to change has to come from the inside out and quite often there is very little incentive for a perpetrator to want to change uh, or if they are capable of it that is any way to start with so I guess it's you know it is about as you say building up those support systems around but you know we see this all over with you know a lack of education a lack of understanding whether it's domestic abuse that's being handled in the family courts the lack of you know the fact there's no domestic abuse training that's compulsory for any legal professional is utterly shocking and disgusting in my opinion so you know the very fact that you've got to you know if the people on the inside were asking for the change and um, that would be great but quite often if you're coming from the outside saying oh, this isn't really working for a lot of us you know how how, how do you get that change? And what are the sort of things that you're hoping to see coming up over the next you know, months and years ahead? These are such important questions and you're very right. Often it can feel so laborious and it feels like, you know, we're not reaching our goals. But I think, um, you know, you make such valid points about tangible changes. How do we see them? And, and, and it requires willingness. Absolutely, it requires willingness. And we're not going to see that um, from perpetrators, but what we can do is change the mindset of those individuals in the peripheries around the abusers. So like with any uh, social community or social group, oftentimes power is vested in the center, right? And as further you, or what we understand is the power is at the center, but what we need to do when we are working within communities, whether we're from the outside or inside, we need to understand and recognize actually power is everywhere. People can assert themselves as long as we are there to support one another. Right. And that's, you know, and I'm paraphrasing the great bell hooks who who spoke about this in her feminist theory, you know, from margin to center. It's about transforming our understandings of what power means and where it is, because those who are practicing or facilitating the abuse do not want us to understand that the power lies within us to stand up, to uh, form and build communities. And as such, you know, moving forward, I'm um, really happy to spotlight um, the Faith and Violence Against Women Coalition, which is a group of organizations, including my own, who are working together 
to eradicate spiritual abuse in community settings, to work towards policy changes, to work towards legal changes, you know, to criminalize these sort of things. You know, for the first time um, in 2021, the domestic abuse bill, uh, coercive control in the case of marriages was actually accepted in religious marriages, you know, that, you know, it is not just um, a civil issue, it is a criminal act if you withhold a Jewish or a, a Jewish divorce from a woman. So that is a, a, a tangible change that has been made because of wonderful women within the Orthodox Jewish community who have campaigned endlessly, many of them I call friends and dear ones. And, you know, seeing that happen in other communities as well. I think until abusers realize that actually what they're doing is not okay, but also the ramifications mean criminal uh, retribution, uh, criminal justice and retribution in the criminal courts, that's the day when they will wake up and realize, actually, this is too far and maybe I need to check myself. I mean, these changes are so important. And yeah, I mean, a big shout out to all those women and men, I guess, that, who are campaigning for these changes to happen because it takes guts. Because if you put your head above the parapet, People are going to take a pop and especially with such, you know, unfortunately, such contentious issues where there are very extreme views um, that will, you know, if you're saying something they don't want to hear, they're going to want to shut you down. So, you know, I think it takes a lot of courage. I think the work you do is incredible. And I think that shining a light on these areas is, is so, so important. So cheering you on all the way with your work, Mariam. Please tell us your website, your social media handles. Let's get those out there for everyone so they can find you and, and tap into those resources. Sarah, thank you so much for spotlighting this. I think it's just so fundamental and crucial that others who have a platform like you, you know, who facilitate the empowerment of women and, and men and those in um in relationship settings especially. Um, so uh, with regards to my social media handles. I'm almost everywhere. So on Instagram, it's uh, at Shift with Mariam. Uh, you know, I hope we can we can link to that. And then on Facebook, it's the Shift with Mariam. It's also a, a page there. And um, I have a specific resource on my website, which is www.theshiftwithmariam.com slash forward slash save. S-A-V-E. So that's where all the resources are contained. I also have a YouTube channel with the same name and you're more than welcome to follow me as an individual on my uh, Twitter account. So Amazing. Well, thank you so much. I've got one last question for you that I ask all my guests that come on. Um, now, as you know, my podcast is called Heartbreak to Happiness. And I think it's really important to know what happiness is for you so that you can spot it along the way, even if you are struggling with any form of abuse. So, Marion, what is happiness for you? That's such a beautiful question, Sarah. And um, reflecting on happiness for me, I guess, especially when I'm at my lowest, happiness is when I collect myself and reinvigorate my sense of purpose. And for me, that is social justice. At the cornerstone of everything that I believe in, is to ensure that my sort of legacy or my footprint on this world, every intention that I've made is with a sense of goodness. And that derives for me from my faith, from my understanding of humanity 
and to access or gain that sense of happiness is to revisit my purpose and to act upon it. And nothing gives me more happiness than helping those who are less fortunate than I am or who do not have the privilege that I have been afforded. So um, basically what I do, I do what I love and I love what I do. For those of you watching on YouTube, you know, I mean, you'll be able to see, I mean, your your goodness shines through, your intention and your purpose is very, very strong. And, you know, I know that you're helping so many people. You certainly will have shed some wonderful, much needed light today on this topic. So thank you for being a fabulous guest. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Sarah. That's it for today's episode. Do head on over to The Shift with Mariam, that's M-A-Y-U-M, .com to find out more about Mariam's work and all the good things she's doing and to tap into some of those really useful resources. That's it for today and I look forward to seeing you on my next episode. That's it for today's episode of Heartbreak to Happiness. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review to win a free ticket to Sarah's virtual Heartbreak to Happiness retreat. This is a transformative combination of live webinars with Sarah herself, coupled with her empowering online video program designed to help you cope better with your breakup and start feeling happy again. For more details, head on over to heartbreaktohappinesspodcast.com where you can also get a copy of Sarah's gift. Thank you, and join us again on the next episode for another dose of Heartbreak to Happiness. Happiness.